The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, live from the Boston Convention Center at the annual meeting of the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce, it's a special edition of Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. It's one of the busiest days of the election cycle with primaries in five states. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics. And yes, a special edition of Bloomberg Sound On. We're in Boston Live, where the biggest meeting of business and politics is happening tonight, courtesy the Boston Chamber of Commerce. We're going to be hearing from some of the smartest minds in the hub here, including Lisa Whelan, the CEO of the Massachusetts Port Authority. That's the agency that manages the intersection of transportation and trade and oversees the port here in Boston that is now connecting to new markets thanks to a massive dredging project. We'll talk about that and the supply chain crisis, how it's impacting economies in the Northeast. Our panel today, two local names with national influence in politics. Scott Furson of Liberty Square Group and Jennifer Nassour is back with us, former chair of the Massachusetts GOP as we meet Jennifer right here in her hometown. So we've got a lot on the way this hour. You picked a good day to join us. And as we join you from the Boston Convention Center in the Seaport District of Boston, if you know this part of town or not, we're overlooking Boston Harbor. We can see Logan Airport on one side, and as I look to my left, the Boston skyline on the other. It's a gorgeous view. And the annual meeting here of the Greater Boston Chamber. It's the biggest business event of the year in a rather unique economy here. Bloomberg is the media sponsor, and a special greetings to Bloomberg Radio here in Boston, our listeners on 106.1 FM. This meeting is happening today against the backdrop of primary politics. We're going to be talking about this a lot this hour. Voting in five states, including Pennsylvania, where the Senate race is one of the most closely watched in the country, and by the way, one of the most expensive so far as well. And that is where we're going to start with our panel. Scott Furson is with us, Liberty Square Group, along with Jennifer Nassour, no stranger to this program, former chair of the Massachusetts GOP. What a treat to have both of you here. It's great to see you. Jennifer, I'll start with you, if I can. Not on the races yet, but on the, on the issues that we're hearing people talk about in the room here that translate to every state and every contest in the country. Number one is inflation, right? Supply chains might come in there, uh, and of course they're deeply intertwined. We're gonna be speaking uh, soon with the CEO of Massport. Uh, and some of the other attempts to reopen the economy, I guess, as I'm learning today, sh showing up in Boston, there's a new uh, variant that is sending caseloads higher. And these are all conversations that we're having around the country right now. Here in Boston, though, how much of a concern is this COVID issue when we're looking at historical high inflation, historically high inflation, and an attempt to reopen from an economy that might not let us reopen quite the way we want? First of all, it's great to be here and great to actually see you in person. In, so in the flesh. Thank you. Speaking of reopening. <laughs> Speaking of reopening. Mm -hmm. um, I think the economy... It's always the economy, stupid, right? And so it is inflation. It's the fact that when we go and put gas in our gas tanks, yeah. it's the other day it cost me $5 a gallon to put gas in my gas tank in Massachusetts. Right. That's crazy. And so for, I think for a lot of people, especially in an area where a lot of people are driving all the time, 
it, that's what people are looking at. Putting mm -hmm. food on the table, housing costs, food costs, gas costs. And it just seems like it, you're never getting a break. And so I think here in Massachusetts where we were closed down for a long time, people are ready to get out. But when things are costing so much money and businesses can't find people to work for them, you're go we're going to see the economy take a big hit here if mm -hmm. things continue on the trajectory that they're on. What do you make of, of this uh, part of the conversation, Scott? You've run campaigns. These, these translate across the country right now. And if you're a Democrat uh, running for office or for re-election, you're going to be hit with questions about inflation first. How do you manage that before it's a problem? I, th I think you have to manage it. It's um, I've been I agree with, with with Jen. I've been traveling around the country. I've been in Illinois and yeah. Ohio and uh, and Texas and Georgia and other places. And people are you know it's, they're talking about inflation. They don't use that word. Mm -hmm. It is gas prices. It's mm -hmm. food prices. Housing is a huge issue. And the places that I've been to, which are, are sort of swing districts, um, the unemployment is very low. So it's, it's not that, it's not that people are out of work, yeah. it's that people uh, feel stuck in whatever house they're in, even if their house is worth a whole lot more than they paid for it, they don't feel like they have options in the way that the people did. Yeah. And gas prices is a real concern. Um, you know, if you're a farmer, and 40% of this country just by acreage is farm. Mm -hmm. we, 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 you know, it's a huge amount of, of, of acreage. Uh, Easy takes to forget a lot that to, on the coast, yeah, right? Yeah, it, it takes a lot to, to fill up a tractor. It takes yes. a lot to fill up a truck. It takes a lot to fill up a tractor trailer, moving yeah. goods from port uh, as well. Um, so with that in mind, this is the backdrop for a huge primary day here. And I realize that these are, uh, these are not arguments between Democrats and Republicans, but they are giving the fodder for the debate here. Uh, Jennifer, if we can start with, with Pennsylvania, that seems to be the most sort of mainstream contest that people are talking about because it includes a TV star and a major Trump endorsement with Dr. Oz. Um, this race has changed a lot. David McCormick, Dr. Oz beat each other up, spent millions, including a lot of their own money for weeks and weeks, only to watch Kathy Barnett come from nowhere with $100,000 and threaten to win this election. What's going on in Pennsylvania? Well, I mean, that is going, that is really the, the question of the day. Did I frame that fairly? You did fair, frame it incredibly fairly because I think it was really between the two of those guys um, until she came in. Now, I'll tell you, I got an email. I'm, you know, of course, on all the email chains and lists around, right? And I get an email yesterday, and it started with, that she wouldn't have been born if her mother wasn't raped. Oh my and God. I, right, exactly. That was what I said. Um, and so I found it incredibly offensive as a woman, as a mother with three daughters. I thought it was disgusting to see that. I, I didn't want to read anything else. I don't care what she was saying. So um, I think that the voters of Pennsylvania have to really look at this race and look at who's out there running. I think it's less about the Trump-endorsed candidate and more about who is going to protect their interests. And like we've been talking about, who's going to help the economy? Yeah. Who is going to help and make sure that they're on the way up and not the way down? In Pennsylvania, it could go either way. Is it hurting Republicans the party as a whole to have guys like me talk about this through the prism of a Trump endorsement every Tuesday. I mean, there's obviously more involved in this contest. Are we simplifying this to be its own reality TV show? Yes, I think so. I mean, we're talking at, at stake here is democracy. And I think that's what everyone needs to focus on is what is good for democracy. What is good for democracy is having leaders who are going to lead in front. They're going to make sure that they are putting the priorities of the people who voted for them. And that is not just their voters, but yeah. 
all the electorate, all the people in their state ahead of their own priorities. Mm -hmm. And so I would like to look at it instead of the endorsement end of it, because I think both parties have, have their issues right now. I think it more has to look at what is good for democracy and who is the candidate mm -hmm. that is best. So Scott, on the Democratic side of this contest, it's another whopper. The Lieutenant Governor, uh, John Fetterman, has a stroke on Friday and is gonna be in a hospital bed, maybe even in surgery, having a pacemaker implanted as the results are coming in tonight. Yet he's gonna win with a layup here, right? What does that tell us about the Democratic primary in Pennsylvania? It's obviously not very competitive. No, I mean, Fetterman is, I mean, Connor Lamb is, is, a, is a good candidate sure. and, and should have made this competitive and for whatever reason. How come? Did, well, I, 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 think, I think primaries, both in Republican as, as it is in that, that primary and Democrat primaries, yeah. are really controlled by a very small slice of the electorate. It's as if we let only people who play Dungeons and Dragons vote in primaries, and then, and then that's what we have to vote for in November, the people <laughs> that they pick. And I think we're seeing that a little bit in both things. Fetterman is really a populist, and that's coming yes. through. Yeah. And um, in a time when we've got 89-year-old senators running for re-election, um, I think the fact that he's uh, fit otherwise, but, uh, but in the hospital isn't going to uh, isn't going to deter anybody from voting for him. Yeah. Um, is this because of the image? He's six foot eight. Uh, I don't have to describe his wardrobe to you, the, the, the goatee. He's a tough guy. People think, well, tough guy, a stroke, he'll be fine. Well, I, th I think we, we also want people that don't fit the norm. I think okay. the idea of sending somebody who looks like John Fetterman to yeah, the Senate yeah. is appealing. It's fun. It's appealing to, to me. To, to think to, about, yeah. sure. But another candidate might be besieged by concerns about their health right now. Uh, it doesn't seem to be. Well, it's not him. No. <laughs> yeah. But that makes him unique, doesn't it? I mean, if you were running a campaign and your candidate had a stroke on Friday before the primary, you'd be a little concerned. Well, I, I belong to a party that on occasion we elect dead people, so... Uh. Oh, <laughs> I didn't say that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, that's going to be your general contest then. Fetterman v... Uh, we'll find out tonight. Oz McCormick. It certainly looks like Oz. I mean, it, it maybe maybe think, McCormick on the outside. Do you think, Jennifer, that that Oz pulls this out? He's up by two points in the poll of polls. It's really kind of within the, the the margin, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's within the mar I think it is within the margin. I do think that Oz is going to pull this out, though, mm -hmm. um, for no other reason than just sheer name recognition. At the end of the day, you know, to what Scott was saying, it's like you pull out a very small segment of the population. Everyone who's going is voting for their person, unless. You're the person who actually takes your responsibility to vote in every election seriously. Yes, right. And then you see Dr. Oz is on there. Mm -hmm. And you know Dr. Oz. And you feel good about him. And you've seen him on TV and Oprah. And this is Oprah. why Trump endorsed him. And that's what, exactly. Because one reality sensation to another. Yeah. Wow. This is going to be something to watch tonight. Uh, stay where you are. We'll have the panel with us for the hour. Scott and Jennifer, delighted that you're with us on our special hour of Bloomberg Sound On as we turn to a special guest here that I told you uh, would be coming. Lisa Whelan is CEO of Massport. Well, we call it Massport here. Most people don't know that's the Massachusetts Port Authority. And it's the, it's the quasi-governmental uh, agency that runs everything we're talking about here. <laughs> Transportation, travel, trade, the port, the airport. It's wonderful to see you in person. Thank you for coming to see us on Bloomberg. Jim, thank you so much for having me. Uh, well, it's Joe, but that's fine. It's all three letters. <laughs> now, um, where to start with this idea of supply chains? We've had reporters out at the port of Long Beach. We've been to the port of LA. We have spoken with the White House about this repeatedly and how to unclog our ports. I wonder what you've experienced here in Boston in terms of ships lining up, in terms of uh, shipping containers piling up. Is this something that you're working through as well? 
So clearly no port in the U.S. has been immune to some of the supply chain disruption that we've experienced. Mm -hmm. uh, but here in the port of Boston, we are congestion free. We're a regional port, which yeah. makes this different than some of the gateways that you've mentioned. Uh, and so what we offer to, to New England's importers and exporters is efficient, reliable, flexible, uh, service, all at a congestion-free port. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that makes us a little bit different, but that doesn't mean that we haven't seen some of the, the issues that others have experienced. Like what? Uh, so certainly just uh, schedule reliability. It's yeah. taking ships a lot longer to get to the East Coast uh, than it used to. It used to take a ship to get from China uh, to Boston 30 days. Now it's taking about 60 days. Why? Because they, uh, they're going through other ports on the way, or, or are there issues we haven't talked about yet? So, so certainly some of the, the issues that we've seen with port shutdowns, mm -hmm. the congestion that you mentioned mm -hmm. in other ports, right? Ships backing up, waiting to be served. Because they're hitting those ports on the way to Boston. Correct, Understood. correct. So correct. this all ends up impacting every major economy or even small economy in the country. I think one of the things that we've learned, our supply chains are quite complex. Uh, one of the silver Isn't linings that right? is that people now have a better understanding of where the stuff comes from that yeah. they use every day. Whether it's the wine that you drink at night, the furniture in your homes, the shoes on your feet. Mm -hmm. Ports play an important role in getting all of those things that we use each and every day to yeah. us. You've been involved in a series of upgrades to the port over a course of years, I know. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you're, you're just past phase three now in digging and dredging uh, the harbor to be able to accept ships and goods that you never could before. What, what is the status of that? You're connecting Boston to markets that you never did business with before. That's correct. So one of the things that we set out to do was to revitalize the port of Boston uh, and keep it competitive. And that meant deepening our harbor to mm -hmm. accommodate the larger container ships that are coming through the Panama Canal. It meant modernizing our container facility, Conley Terminal, with larger cranes, deeper berths, and more technology. Uh, and so those projects are, are near completion. And what does that mean? It means it's opened up new trade routes to yeah. New England's importers and exporters. Yeah, from where? What does that mean for you in, in terms of business? Yeah, so it means two new services from Southeast Asia. Uh, so traditionally, we've had a couple of services calling Boston, one from China, mm -hmm. one from North Europe. Uh, and we've recently announced that we've added two services to Southeast Asia, connecting us to Vietnam. Uh, that's a service with Zimlines and another one uh, connecting us to the Indian subcontinent with Mediterranean Shipping Company. Wow. That, that just provides greater global connectivity yeah. for importers and exporters. Does it mean goods you could not get into this port before as well? Sure, it certainly does, but it also probably means that uh, more of those goods. Okay, understood. Right, so some of the things that come into the Board of Austin, furniture, wines and spirits, uh -huh. sporting goods, mm -hmm. uh, and then on the export side, seafood. Uh, seafood is also a big import into the Port of Boston, uh, paper products. So it does provide additional sourcing strategies, a diversification, if yeah, you will, sure. uh, for importers and exporters. One of the exporters. first things people see when they fly into Boston, a lot of folks at the meeting tonight are the cranes. Uh, in, in South Boston that have been awfully busy, uh, I understand, but what kind of a, of a labor issue are you facing? The, the worker shortages I know have been impacting every part of, if you think of it, your portfolio. We're certainly dealing with it in the airline business. How about in the shipping business? So we've been pretty fortunate. We've taken uh, very, very uh, clear actions to keep our workers safe. Mm -hmm. We've been open every day. We've never shut down because of COVID. And here in the Port of Boston, we have a great relationship with the International Longshoremen's Association. We've worked very closely with them to improve productivity over the past few years, and that's what helps keep us competitive. Wow. Uh, how about the airport? A lot of us have been sitting in gates, maybe sitting in planes on tarmacs, uh, as we try to reopen, 
this sort of confluence of revenge travel versus lack of manpower has created some real stresses, I know, for the industry. What does that mean for Logan Airport in Boston? Sure. I mean, you, you think about the, the stresses in supply chain, right? With Absolutely. all of this increase in demand, similarly, we're seeing that on the airport side of things. Mm -hmm. As people are excited to return to travel, we're excited to welcome passengers back. Um, but coming out of a pandemic with labor shortages, uh, also, you know, planes that were parked for a long time, right. coming back into service, those create some challenges. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think we're pretty optimistic about what we see. Uh, at Logan, we're not quite back to where we were pre-pandemic, but we look ahead to a very busy spring and summer travel season with mm -hmm. the restoration of a number of European flights. Uh, and I think it's pretty exciting. How close are you uh, to being back to, to, to being made whole in terms of, of routes specifically, never mind actual volume of aircraft? Yeah, so we're getting close. This summer we'll see a restoration of a number of services that were suspended during the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, and then we see airlines making investments in new routes as well, mm -hmm. uh, which is pretty exciting. We've got Delta launching service to Tel Aviv and Athens, American launching new services into Canada, and we'll have five carriers going into the London market, which is all great news for travelers. How about that? Um, do you have a projection or do you not play that game uh, for the rest of the year in terms of traffic and, and in fact getting back to where you were before the pandemic? Yeah, so I think we're a couple of years off. A couple before. of years? I yes. thought you'd say months. <laughs> no, we're, Logan is at about 75% okay. of pre-pandemic passenger volume. Yeah. Uh, so I anticipate that it'll take us a couple of years to get back to where wow. we were, uh -huh. but we're on the right trajectory. Is it airline by airline or are they all dealing with this similar recovery right now? Do you speak with the carriers individually? We do. We do, and I think you know the the labor challenges are mm -hmm. affecting everyone, and so we're seeing them adjust their schedules accordingly mm -hmm. to try to smooth out some of the operational challenges that you mentioned and yeah. others have experienced. Uh, and certainly, I think the the impact that's had on the the travel experience and the customers has been unfortunate. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think we're seeing them make adjustments to try to to solve for some of that. It's a fascinating conversation, Lisa. I really appreciate your talking with us today on Bloomberg. Lisa Whelan runs Massport, and I hope you have a great time tonight. Thank you, Joe. Before you leave us, by the way, tell our listeners what they're going to miss at this event. They're wondering around the country why we're here. <laughs> well, I will say <laughs> that we're here to to thank four great individuals okay. who are getting inducted. This is going to uh, be right a good answer. Honors, you yes, know. You're right. um, but from my perspective, given the topics that we're talking about, Governor Baker. Uh, and Tom Glynn, who's Massport's former CEO. Right, yeah. Been tremendous supporters of the port. Uh, Tom initiated our revitalization strategy and Governor Baker was incredibly supportive, sure. uh, helping us to pay for dredging mm -hmm. and the modernization, the new cranes. Uh, so we're thankful for their leadership and we congratulate them tonight. Excellent. Enjoy yourself. Thank Come you. Come see us again on Bloomberg. It's great to meet you. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. As we spend time here uh, at the Boston Convention Center on Bloomberg Sound On, I'm Joe Matthew in the hub of the universe with our panel, Scott First and Jennifer Nasur is with us. So how about it? We just heard from somebody who touches these issues on a, on a direct basis, a first-hand basis every day. It's going to be years before the airport is back. I was surprised to hear that, Scott. Were you? Yeah, I was surprised to hear that too, because it certainly, I mean, I think maybe we've been locked down for so long, yeah. any activity seems like it's, it's back to full strength. I guess strength. that's right, yeah. Uh, but certainly I've, I've you know, traveled through the airport and, and it mm -hmm. doesn't feel like it's, it's, uh, you know, it's fully back up. Flights mm -hmm. you know, are hit or miss, sure. uh, the road's coming here. 
too, so you can see that. And I think, you know, how does that impact it as we're talking about the election? I think that does, that, that sort of lingering effect. You might have a job, but it's going to take a while for families to recover, too, uh, fully from pre-pandemic. Yeah. They're not wearing masks on those planes, though, Jennifer, and that's, that's bringing even more people back into the fold, isn't it? I think so. I, I, I actually had the pleasure of going mask-free on a flight. Did it feel um, weird? Was it just me? I felt like it, I was doing something wrong. It was weird. I thought I was going to get yelled at. Right. I was like, oh, I'm going to get sent to the principal's <laughs> office. Right? Yes. Um, it was very weird. And I, I am a little bit of a germaphobe, and I was before COVID. Um, and so it was strange to watch and... Um, but it felt great to be back there, and I think that a lot of people will start hopefully traveling again. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been to Logan. It feels like it's really crowded, but I think one of the things is there are restaurants that are still not open, yeah, right? right? There are um, parts, you know, there, there are flights that are still not coming in or going out. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that that's one of the reasons that it does feel so full. Boston is slowly starting, but it definitely, you know, again, it's like everything is perception. When you saw the streets completely empty, That's right. and then a few people on the streets, and now you see so many more. Our you baseline think, is oh, pretty low here. Exactly. <laughs> so, That's it. <laughs> Scott, I was amazed to learn that this that the Boston market suffered a greater loss in leisure and hospitality jobs than any in the country, any city in the country. New York, you think of the places we go, San Francisco, LA, Orlando, had nothing on Boston. That's a long-term impact. When you talk about those types of jobs and the families they support, do you worry about employment here in the state coming back? Or, or is it a story like we're hearing in other parts of the country where there are two open jobs for every job seeker. Yeah, I mean, I think this is part of the success. Um, I'll give I'll give wide credit to the governor and to the legislature and everybody mm -hmm. who uh, who did this. I mean, we were hit harder first. Yes. Way harder first. And uh, in the shutdown that happened, when you think about it, we've been suffering it longer and going through this longer than most parts how, of the country. Um, so both the impact uh, was tougher here. Um, the job market was already tight anyway going into it. So mm -hmm. you've got just a number of things that... So there was kind of a built-in resiliency here in the later stages of COVID that other cities might not have had. And I think you see, particularly, you know, there's two economies here, the tech economy, the surface economy, and the tech economy just uh, blip and moved on. Mm -hmm. And I, we all work out of our houses. And the surface economy just tanked. And I think it's going to take a long time for the tech economy yes, to right. get back in sync with the service economy. That's been, I mean, I don't want to get too wonky into politics or, or, or economics on a politics show here, but that's been the real issue is this, there was this big overcorrection demand for goods created this huge bottleneck in our ports, no matter where you are apparently, and it's going to be a slow turn back to services, Jennifer, where things maybe find some balance on their own. Definitely. I mean, if you walk into any shop, any business, whether it's a large conglomerate mm -hmm. or a mom and pop shop, if you go from a very large um, you know, chain restaurant down to the small ones in Beacon Hill and Back Bay and the South End, you see the same thing going on. There aren't enough servers. There aren't enough people working in stores. Hmm. Not enough people to help. Not there's. If you go into shops, a lot of times there's not enough goods that are out there. Um, and I think our restaurant industry, our travel and leisure has definitely taken a hit. That's where you could see it, I think, the most yeah. is in the service industry. And going back to what you said before, 
it's not that the that the unemployment rate is high. Mm-hmm. It's just that there's no one there. And whether people took off and left or people just said, I'm getting enough money from the government and I don't have to do anything. Um, but, it, but it's really impacting, one, consumers, but also the business owners. Yeah, right, absolutely. Uh, that's not going to change for the rest of this election cycle, Scott. Uh, how much of an issue is the economy in, in local elections here? Is it just the same as national? Well, I, th- I think there's, there's sort of, as we talk about it on primary day, there's two things, mm-hmm. right? You've, mm-hmm. So you've got the Dungeons and Dragons players who get yeah. to decide who we get to vote for in November. <laughs> right. So by the time that, that most people are going to be paying attention, just regular voters yeah. who are affected by the economy, who are affected by gas prices and grocery prices, they're going to get there and they're going to have, in Pennsylvania, Dr. Oz yes. and Fetterman. And, and you know then you've got the whole overlay of choice issues and what the court might do mm-hmm. um, and and other things that are affecting it. You know, how does that all play out? I think, um, you know, and then the balance of power. I, I don't yeah. think that people are going to be thinking about the balance of power. I think We're going to talk more about the primaries yeah. with Scott and Jennifer. We haven't even mentioned Madison Cawthorn yet. Up next, Carrie Goldberg, Bloomberg's Boston Bureau Chief. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. When I landed at Logan Airport here in Boston, my phone buzzed with a local news alert. It was a story from the Globe. The headline, the new highly transmissible Omicron variant, BA2121, is dominating in mass. Are we doing this again? We're going to talk about it next with Kerry Goldberg, the Boston Bureau Chief for Bloomberg, out with also an amazing story today on why hospitals are postponing CAT scans and rationing care. Yeah, it's about the supply chains. We'll get into that next in a special edition of Sound On from Boston. I'm hoping some hors d'oeuvres, you know, might go <laughs> by here, Carrie, pretty soon. And we're, we're set up in the, the, the massive mezzanine level, the lobby level, uh, outside the ballroom at the Boston uh, Convention Center here in the Seaport District where the Chamber of Commerce is having its annual business meeting, the biggest business event of the year here in the hub of the universe and with Bloomberg, <laughs> the media sponsor, we thought we'd come up here and talk to some folks we normally don't get to see, including... Gary Goldberg, the Bloomberg Boston Bureau Chief. What a treat to have you. Thanks for coming to see us here, Carrie. Thank you. You spent a lot of time covering COVID. Yes. You spent a lot of time covering the recovery and the supposed reopening from COVID, and it's being challenged again. How concerned are you as you see New York reach a high level that Boston might be there next? Right. Boston is pretty much already there. In yeah. fact, the positive test rate in Massachusetts is over 8% at this point. And I have to confess that I'm looking around at this big room full of hundreds are of people. Are you getting nervous? Hobnobbing. I'm cringing. <laughs> I'm looking at them. Almost none of them are wearing masks. And I'm just, right. as a longtime health reporter, I'm feeling like, are you sure? Are you sure you want to do this? Yeah, over you're here. 8%? I, right. Yeah. Uh, and half of these people may have flown in like I did. Um, 
Is it impacting business right now? I know there's a lawsuit, for instance, in the, the North End, which is kind of the little Italy of Boston where restaurants are, are fighting this idea of having to pay for, for street dining, for instance. There have been a lot of growing pains that continue. Right. But although I would say that's not directly due to COVID. I no? mean, it is the outdoor dining, yes. which is due to COVID. But I wouldn't say that this new wave that we're seeing right, right. now, Understood. which the Northeast seems to be leading in, mm -hmm. is affecting businesses at mm -hmm. this point. Mm -hmm. yeah. Is that because we're not paying attention right now? And that would be just about exactly ah, right. It seems okay. like we're all in a lot of denial. And it's not just denial. I mean, the fact is that to a great extent, we have decoupled yeah. this high rate of cases yeah. from the rate of hospitalization, not totally, but mostly. So, you know, it's a reasonable decision to hobnob in this giant room Fair with enough, lots yeah. of unmasked people. They have lobster rolls, too. So, I mean, Might come on. So yeah. you talk about COVID. You can't escape the topic of supply chain. We just spoke with the Massport CEO a while ago, and you've got a remarkable story on the terminal. Uh, we remember when, you know, they were they were uh, eliminating elective surgeries and so forth at the beginning of COVID. This is a little different. Hospitals around the U.S., as Kerry writes, are postponing CAT scans and rationing care while waiting on shipments of medical dye that's made in a Shanghai plant that, of course, has been dealing with lockdowns here. Right. This is such a classic example of the ripple effects. Something happening in Shanghai is going to impact somebody who's living right here in the Boston area. How, how severe is this problem? Right, so the problem is significant already. I mean, hospitals around the country are postponing some of their CAT scans, and they're worried that if this continues to get worse, which it probably will before it gets better, yeah. that they may have to postpone emergency CAT, scan, CAT scans. Like when you have, you might be having a heart attack, you might be having a stroke, wow. you go into yeah. the ER, they need to check to see what's going on in your brain or your heart. You they can't need do to that use, without the dye. Right. They need this fluid that they put into your body to see what's going on yeah. in there. And if they run out, which they haven't yet, but which they're worried that they will, then they won't be able to do that. Are there solutions being presented here or are we hoping for the best? So hospitals are trying to conserve any way they can. They're using smaller doses. They're they're trying to put off anything that they can. Yeah. But, you know, the American Hospital Association just sent a letter to the maker of this dye, General Electric, which is a Boston-based company, uh. saying, look, we are very worried that there's going to be a severe gap between demand and supply in the coming weeks. So there's great concern. So th is this the next baby formula? The White House is going to have to deal with this next week and say the president is invoking the, the National Defense Act or the Production Act to make this better? I mean, we need, we need to see how it develops. Um, GE is doing all it can. It's actually flying supplies in that would normally come by ship. Oh, wow. And so, you know, it is coping as best it can. But GE is saying at this point the, the factory that closed in Shanghai is only back up to 50% mm -hmm. of its normal production. So that's better, but it's not enough. Mm -hmm. And so basically we're going to see this crunch in the coming weeks. And it is possible that it would reach the point where the White House needs to do something. Oh my God. Well, uh, it's great reporting. Find the story on the terminal. Hospitals ration CAT scans awaiting dye from Shanghai GE plant, just like GE needed more trouble more right troubles, now. Right. And also one more supply yeah. chain issue in yeah. the medical system that everyone says, look, we can't have this. We can't have too much dependence on one supplier of essential medical goods. Right. And yet it happened again. It's unbelievable. Carrie, thank you for bringing this to us. It's wonderful to see you, you too. and spend some time here in the flesh without masks, <laughs> at least for now, in Boston. Our panel is with us for uh, a couple of more moments here on this topic, at least. Jennifer Nasur, Scott Furson. This is like, uh, my goodness, it's, it's just like watching a rerun here. Every story ends up that we're tackling today being, being a similar one. When it comes to supply chains like this, Jennifer, what's the political fallout for this White House? They get blamed for it? 
Yeah, absolutely. You know why I think that... Is that fair? <laughs> I think so. Because, look, the, the person in power always gets the high if the economy is high and the low mm -hmm. if the economy is Even low. Even if they have little to do with either. It doesn't it's matter. Just it's it just, that's just the way it is. And so you take a victory lap when the economy is doing great and everyone is employed and there's no unemployment. However, right now, with the record high inflation, everything that we were talking about, you hear about you know this medical problem. You, mm -hmm. you listen to moms who cannot get formula mm -hmm. for their babies. If you want to change an election, mess with mothers and their children, okay? That is the one way to yeah. get people off of their rumps and to go and vote, yeah. is to say, I, you're not letting me feed my baby. Right. And, and I don't want to hear anything other than, how do I feed my child? Because that is something today that mm -hmm. is an issue. And so unless the White House could fix the, today's issues, mm -hmm. I think they're going to get walloped. In, at, at the in risk November. of invoking this story after what you just said, Scott. That's what a lot of Democrats and a lot of progressives are saying about reproductive rights right now. Mess with mothers. We're gonna have a march on Washington and what Elizabeth Warren says will be a reckoning at the ballot box in November. How do you manage it on the campaign level? Well, I think those are two different issues. I think they the, are. Yeah, I think one is, you know, how does the White House respond to, you know, it's very destabilizing, right? Yeah. The, the pandemic has been destabilizing. The, the fact that you can't get baby formula is just destabilizing. Mm -hmm. This is America, you know, we're not used to Isn't these, having a these travel things. for an abortion destabilizing? Well, but I think it's, I think that in terms of, that's a direct assault. That's not how the, how the administration might respond Correct. to a supply yeah. chain issue. Well, sure. You know, that's, that's sort of the, you know, so I would look at those two things differently. I think they're, but we're talking about a mix where where mm -hmm. I'm going to be in the ballot mm -hmm. ballot box, and all of these things are going to be in my mind. And, and the question is how they how they settle out. Why our heads are spinning? Spinning this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. You know, it's not often we share a room with a thousand people here on Sound On. It's usually three. But that's exactly what we have today here, as you can hear behind us at what is the biggest meeting of business and politics in the great city of Boston. The annual meeting of the Boston Chamber underway here, and we're all set up at the Boston Chamber of Commerce uh, here at the Convention Center with special honors tonight going to Governor Charlie Baker, who incidentally will not be here after falling ill. His office says he tested negative for COVID today, and we do wish the governor well because we were planning and hoping to speak with him. But let's reassemble the panel to get into some of the topics and races that we're looking at on this busy primary day. We've talked about the Pennsylvania primary with Jennifer Nassour, the former chair of the Massachusetts GOP, and with Scott Furson of Liberty Square Group here in Boston, political consultant and strategist. And so we'll carry on with, I know you've been looking forward, Jennifer, to talking about Madison Cawthorn. I have to bring it up because it's so impossible to escape, and he's the youngest member of Congress got a lot of attention when he came into office, endorsed early by President Trump. And wow, the last couple of weeks have been something. He says that it's a media made up, you know, hit job on him, but it's videos you couldn't show a child. 
It's walking through airport security with a gun in your bag. It's being pulled over with a revoked license. This is the 11th District, North Carolina, seven primary opponents. What happens tonight? Well, I think, and I hope that that's not because I'm just being, it's wishful thinking, but yeah. I think that he is going to finally go down. I think a lot of his Republican colleagues are hoping he goes down. I think the majority of the Republican Party hopes that he goes down. It, these scandals won't ever go away, and they taint other candidates. Um, and it's unfortunate because it takes away from the larger picture of the issues that are important right now to voters. Mm -hmm. What does it say about the Trump brand again here, Scott, uh, when we're looking at someone that even the Republican leadership would prefer to see lose tonight? Well, I, th I think the um, a couple of things. One is, you know, Trump is is sort of hedged his bets on this one. I yep. think, you know, so he'll take he'll take credit for it if he gets his thirty percent okay. and avoids a runoff. Um, but I do. There's this old adage about Congress that when you first get elected to Congress, you look around, and you think, how did I get here? Yeah. And then after a month, you look around, and you think, how did they get here? <laughs> you know. So I think there, this is a long history where where uh, where Congress, particularly the House of Representatives, is large enough that you've got all all kinds of characters. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it's it's a it's a problem when you know, the, the powers that be say that, that this is an embarrassment and we need to have him removed. And then you've got seven candidates running against him and then you're just, you're just diffusing your odds in, yes. in, in, in a way. So I, I, he might survive. It'd wow. be interesting to, to see. In, in which case, if he does, it seems like he will he'll still be returned to Congress. I'm guessing so. no major committee assignments anytime soon if that's no. the case, Jennifer. No, I think their plan is to get rid of him. I wow. mean, to, yeah. to suppress him as much as possible. And I'm hoping that when, you know, when you're looking at um, and, and I'm a fan of ranked choice voting. And I think one of the things that you look at is it becomes harder to get to your percentages if you aren't a good candidate, if yeah. you aren't someone's, yeah. you know, first or second or maybe top third choice. And in this in this case, I'm hoping that the other candidates really just dilute his numbers down um, and it goes away that way because I think it's a really big mess for leadership to have to deal with him otherwise. I want to ask you about the governor's race here. I mentioned Charlie Baker. He's not going to be with us. He's, uh, he's not running for re-election, which was a pretty big deal. Scott, maybe you saw that coming. Uh, but it looks like he's going to be spending more time talking about his book than, you know, national politics as we move forward here. Not that he was ever really talking about national politics. I mean, he's like the unicorn Republican here, was never in the Trump uh, zone, uh, was not a fan when, when this first came about and doesn't even seem to agree on a lot of things with his own state party. Uh, what kind of a legacy does he leave before I ask you about replacing him? Yeah, um, I, I, I think a strong legacy. I mean, I, you know, the as a Democrat, I might say, well, he's frustrating on a number of fronts. He should be this, he should be that. But when you look at the reality of what people in Massachusetts think about the governor, yeah. he could easily, we were just talking about this, he could be reelected as a Democrat if he right. wanted to. It, that was clear. So. You know, as we would say, he's doing something right. Yeah. You know, that, that to, to have those kinds of numbers, and he leaves the state in a, in a strong position. Um, I am going to go out on a limb here and put my little Republican hat on and pretend to be a Republican <laughs> strategist and say he should he should run for president because his path to the nomination he doesn't have to go through Donald Trump in the way that others uh, do. So he'd you be know, an it's a instant clearer, outside candidate. Now, it's a much, much smaller uh, pool to, in the Republican right. primary to, to come from, but his path is, I think, a lot clearer than Ted Cruz's or Josh Hawley's or other really? people. How, how do you clear that field, though, in a, in a contested? I can't wait to hear your views on this, Jennifer. Well, Larry but, Hogan in, in Maryland is, is kicking the tires at well, it. That's I mean, right. They have a lot in common. Yeah. But, Jennifer, this has become a different party. They, they would call 
Charlie Baker, a Democrat. Donald Trump called him a rhino. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, Scott, I'm sure if uh, First Lady Lauren Baker is listening right now, <laughs> she has a voodoo doll oh, <laughs> poking geez. you right now. Don't you dare. <laughs> Off the Christmas card list. <laughs> You're done. That's it. Um, so, I, you know, I think, number one, I'm, I'm one of the governor's biggest fans. I would throw myself in front of a bus for him. Wow. I think he is amazing. He's brilliant. He's done a great job in Massachusetts. Yeah. It has not been about sticking with the um, politi- the, the politics of the day. It's not political. It is about management, which is why Massachusetts is the largest surplus in any state budget. Why is, you know, we're, if, if it wasn't for COVID, we would be the most prosperous of every, of every state. So why is he so frequently at odds with the national party? Because he doesn't care. He doesn't want to get involved in the politics. He's not falling into the Trump, oh, we've got to hate everyone and, and, you know, say nasty comments. Instead, he is very focused on Massachusetts. And that's why I don't know if he would even want to run for president. And, Hmm. you know, if he did, he would be a choice for others. He would be like the Chris Christie, like, you know, like others who go out there and are not in the Trump mold, which I think is great. However, um... I'm sad to see the governor go. I really was hoping he was going to run for a third term. He has been amazing. It's the end of, of a dynasty here. Um, and it will be interesting to see what the next four or eight years bring um, after this election. And on the Republican side, we have two candidates running. On the Democratic yeah, right. side, they have two candidates running. Mm-hmm. I think both Scott and I would agree that, you know, there are maybe two people in this race on either side that should move on and allow the voters to hear the real issues that are going on. Well, let's get into that a little bit. By the way, Scott, you don't think Charlie Baker has national ambitions, do you? I, I, I don't. I don't I'm you not don't. privy to what Governor Baker yeah. is thinking. Yeah. No, but, I don't. But you haven't assumed that he was going to make a dash for Washington. No, uh, no. He just doesn't seem that kind of guy. No. Lo and behold, Marty Walsh is the one in Washington. But that's another question. Um, as far as this goes... Maura Healey is the clear front runner on the Democratic side. Is that done? She's going to get this nomination? I, I think we should, frankly, just swear her in right now. Okay. I mean, I, I think Maura is going to be governor. Oh, that's democracy. Uh, is Jeff Deal <laughs> the mainstream candidate on your side, Jennifer? No, Who are you no, looking at? No, no. He was Donald Trump's campaign so-called state, uh, what, chairman yeah. uh, in 16. And the only, I remember going there from a Boston news outfit at the time, went to the Trump convention, and he was the only person from Mass there not another member of the party showed up. Right. Right. Exactly. That's who Jeff Deal is. Mm-hmm. So Jeff Deal, it's all about politics, right? It's about throwing the Trump name around. So you don't see him winning this Just primary. a newsflash. We live in Massachusetts. I, I, so, I mean, the, the Trump thing isn't, isn't flying here. Right. That's number one. Number two, we have a very interesting primary system. So we have 56%, roughly 56% of our electorate are actually unenrolled voters. So on primary day, they can pick which primary they want to run, that they want to vote in. And so here for us, I think that having someone who's so extreme can work the other way. Because mm-hmm. for years and years, I've always heard people who've said, I'm going to vote for the other person. Not because I care about Republican politics or Democratic politics, but I don't want that person to show up on the ballot. And I think that that could be the case here. Chris Dowdy, who is the other candidate running, is much more in the Mitt Romney, Paul Cellucci, Jane Swift, Bill Weld, and Charlie Baker. Can he give more healing real competition? He can because I think he, he has a good grasp on 
business. Mm-hmm. He, he's a business owner. He has built his business from the ground up. He's a father. He's a grandfather. And so he's very in touch with what is going on in Massachusetts yeah. on the ground. And so he would be the one who would have a really good debate with her, a solid debate, where they're right. both very smart people uh-huh. who could have a good debate that it's not throwing around national politics and bringing it into Massachusetts. There's no place for that More here. Healy's got the cash, though, Scott. Uh, certainly name recognition and quite a story to tell with, you know, this David and Goliath attorney general from Mass who sued all these massive corporations, including the opioid lawsuit that a lot of people can relate with. It, could, could there be a real Republican challenge? You're ready to swear her in. I'm ready to swear her in, but I think it would be nice if there's a Republican challenge. I certainly think with, with Dowdy, that's a much better, better uh-huh. race. You'd actually have, you could actually get into a policy discussion, which uh, I think okay. would be good and make whoever wins, make Mara when she wins a stronger governor. Yeah. Um, but I do think, you know, she both is extremely well-liked, has done a great job as Attorney General, uh, and would be groundbreaking. I, Jane Swift was governor, but yes, to right. elect yeah. a governor yeah. in Massachusetts, uh, LGBTQ, is, is, would be groundbreaking, I think, uh, very attractive. All right, we have less than a minute left. I'm going to throw this at both of you. You'll just love me for it. I understand that the deadline to file as an independent is August. Marty Walsh, anyone? No. no. Scott, no. <laughs> I, you I see it, Jennifer. I, you know, I, I think a lot of people would have really liked that again, our 56% yeah. unenrolled. I don't know if he leaves a solid job in D.C. for a prospect. And All right. Right. He is everywhere in D.C. Every time he's I look at TV, unreal. he's everywhere. I can't yeah. show up anywhere without saying, Mr. Mayor, I mean Secretary. Thank you so much to both of you. Scott, Jennifer, wonderful conversation. I told you we'd have some smart minds here. Thanks to Kerry Goldberg as well and Lisa Whelan from Massport. A special edition of Sound On. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.